0: So, hi everybody! Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today, we're holding a panel discussion with our editorial board in honor of Rare Disease Day. So, I'm joined by our editor in chief, Dr. Thomas Abrams, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and institute physician at Dana Farber Cancer Institute. And he will be discussing rare gastrointestinal cancers. So, Dr. Abrams, thanks for joining today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. This is really exciting. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. We also have Maria Badillo, who is a research nurse manager in the Department of Myeloma Lymphoma at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and she'll be discussing nursing management of mantle cell lymphoma. Maria, thank you for joining as well.
2: Thank you, Kira, for the invitation. Glad to be here.
0: Great. So to start off, Dr. Abrams, would you like to tell us a little bit about the rare gastrointestinal cancers that you see in your
1: practice? Yeah, sure. I mean, GI cancers uh, in general, we have so many, there's such a variety, there's a a number that are actually quite uncommon, but I think the two that really are great for this panel discussion are talking about cholangiocarcinoma and anal cancer. Uh, both are, you know, I wouldn't call them necessarily rare, but they're uncommon, uh, particularly when you uh, think about them in in uh, um, uh, comparison to, say, colon cancer and pancreatic cancer, which are much, much more common. And uh, cholangiocarcinoma affects maybe, you know, 10,000 patients a year in the United States, Uh, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. It's hard to to pinpoint the number, but it's it's a small number in general. But there's been enormous uh, research into molecular uh, changes that um, have ushered in a a whole new type, whole new types of treatments. Uh, that are directed towards specific mutations. Um, and uh, we also have a new treatment for the first line uh, of, uh, for the first line treatment of metastatic cholangiocarcinoma that includes immunotherapy. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about what we can find in intrapatic cholangiocarcinomas uh, that can change the treatment. Um, and uh, in anal squamous cell carcinoma, it's a pretty uncommon cancer. It's only about five to 6,000 a year, although incidence is rising. And it's an HPV, uh, human papillomavirus-related human papillomavirus cancer. Um, and it also has you know, great responses to um, immunotherapy. So it's an interesting cancer from a therapeutic standpoint as well. So those are the, the two that I'd like to talk about today. We'll talk about cholangiocarcinoma first. Uh, Cholangiocarcinoma is a a disease that arises within the liver, uh, uh, typically um, in in the bile ducts. Uh, And we're speaking specifically about intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. These are the cholangiocarcinomas that arise within the the bile ducts, within the liver. And it turns out that about 35% of them will have an actionable mutation uh, or or molecular uh, abnormality that allows them to be targeted by certain drugs. Um, The the things that we find most often are IDH1 mutations, IDH2 mutations, uh, FGFR2 fusions, and and certain FGFR uh, mutations as well. Um, the, The FGFR2 fusions have a number of drugs that are now approved in the second line. Most recently, it's the covalent FGFR2 inhibitor called futobatinib that, uh, that was approved and, and that seems to be the best in class. Uh, and um, it's the only disease in which futabatinib is approved. So it's a very interesting uh, a drug. And then for the first line treatment of all um, biliary tract cancers, we have a new regimen based on a phase three study that combines chemotherapy, gemcitabine and cisplatin with a drug called dervalumab, which is a, an immunotherapy, uh, a pdl one inhibitor. So we have this raft of new treatments that have really changed the game and made uh, the disease a lot more manageable. It's still a very, very difficult disease to treat. And I don't wanna you know, give the impression that it's you know, now something that we're you know, doing great with, but Patients are living longer, and there's a lot more optimism. Uh, And there's also the IDH1 inhibitor, uh, ibocidinib, which is also approved after failure of gemcitabine-based therapy. Again, another targeted agent with very few side effects that can really improve patients' patient's outcomes. Um, So it's an exciting area. And um, and I think cholangiocarcinoma is... We call it the lung can the, the GI lung cancer because there's so many molecular targets that you can that you can uh, go for. Anal squamous cell carcinoma is a uh, an uncommon disease of the anal canal, uh, and it is related about ninety five percent of the time to the presence of human papilloma virus. Uh, typically, patients are going to present with some bleeding, maybe a little bit of pain. And when it's localized, we treat it, interestingly enough, with just chemotherapy and radiation. And we get a cure rate of about 65 to 70% with just that, so no surgery. If there's residual disease at six months after completion of the chemotherapy and radiation, then a salvage surgery is indicated. And that's an APR, an abdominal perineal resection, where the entire anus and rectum have to be removed and a patient obviously would then need to have a permanent colostomy, which is, you know, not what we're hoping for when we, when we treat this illness, when it's metastatic uh, and or recurrent, then we can treat with chemotherapy and also immunotherapy many times with good results. Um, And so it is a disease in which um, there are increasing therapeutic uh, avenues that we can go down, particularly, uh, you know, because we know that in other HPV-related cancers, immunotherapies tend to be very effective, and this is no different. So, um, you know, an interesting cadre of diseases in the GI world. There are other, you know, rare diseases that we don't see that often, but I think those are the two that I think are, are most interesting.
0: Great. So what are you um, most looking forward to for both of those within the next, you know, five years or so as far as research?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we, what we saw in rectal cancer that's MSI high was that you can treat an MSI high local rectal cancer with just dostarlimab, which is an immune therapy, and get an almost, basically a 100% complete response rate, um, obviating the need for surgery and radiation and all these things that we do in rectal cancer. I think a similar study needs to be done in anal cancer. Now, I don't know that we'll get the same degree of response to immunotherapy, but I think it's worth looking at. And um, that's, a, that's a study that uh, I'm excited to participate in and I think, you know, could really, really elevate how we treat this disease and, you know, take away a lot of the morbidity that is associated with chemotherapy and radiation while simultaneously getting you know, an even higher cure rate. So I'm very excited about that. And then in cholangiocarcinoma, I think as we plumb the depths of the molecular targets, we're going to find that, you know, more and more patients are going to have targetable uh, molecular abnormalities. And we're going to see more and more drugs come online that are going to really improve the outcomes for these patients. And specifically, Taking these drugs that are now approved in the second line, moving them to the first line, combining them with chemotherapy, and seeing what happens—I think that's a you know a very exciting mode of uh, a a, a, a very exciting you know um, way to treat patients. And these trials are coming online, and I'm very excited to enroll to them. So yeah, these this is sort of uh, how the how the field is changing, and uh, it's very uh, it's a good time to to be treating these illnesses.
0: Awesome. so exciting. So thank you so much for explaining all of that. Sure. All right. So Maria, we can transition over to you. Um, we'd like to start off maybe telling us a little bit about what you do in your role at MD Anderson, and then we can um, talk about what you see with the uh, MCL patients that you treat.
2: Hi, Kira. So uh, thank you for the opportunity. I am a research nurse manager at our institution. Um happy to uh, and say that I today is actually my 15th year work university work with mental cell lymphoma for that long. And um, so just a brief background about mental cell lymphoma. This is a rare type of lymphoma, making it up between six to 7% of all non-Hodgkin lymphoma. The median age is a diagnosis is usually about 70 years old, predominantly predominantly male. Typically, our patients have generalized lymphadenopathy. Some patients often have extensive involvement in their bone marrow, blood, and GI tract, particularly the colon. Forty percent of the patients have these symptoms, which are fever, night sweats, and weight loss. Mantle cell lymphoma is still an incurable disease. Over the 15 years that I worked with with, those, with our patients, there are six, six drugs that were approved pro- by the FDA, uh, which are the lenalidomide or Revlimid, the Velcade, and the BTK inhibitors, Ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, Xenobrutinib, and the most recent approval of Pertobrutinib. Then on July 2020, uh, the FDA granted an accelerated approval to the cartus, which is the a CD nineteen directed party cell.
0: Great, thank you, and congratulations on your fifty year anniversary. Thank you.
1: Yeah, that is great. What's your what What is the role of of nursing in terms of oral drug compliance for MCL patients?
2: So, since I mentioned earlier, most of the approved drugs for MCL are oral. Compliance is important, especially our patients are taking these drugs at home. Over the past couple of decades, oral chemotherapy drugs have forged a new therapeutic option, providing cancer patients with a more manageable, less invasive alternative to standard IV chemotherapy administration. Because unlike traditional infusion oncology, where doctors, nurses, pharmacists directly oversee the process, Oral chemotherapy requires the patient themselves to correctly administer the drug. As nurses, it is very important that we do our due diligence in terms of educating our patients. With oral chemotherapy, the process is no longer under our direct control. When the patients are taking the drug at home, we never really know if they are taking it correctly. Non-adherence can lead to disease progression, additional physician visits, Longer hospital stays and increased mortality. Medication adherence involves a combined effort and silent understanding between healthcare providers and patients in regard to the degree of conformity in the day-to-day treatment with respect of dosing and frequency, including the duration of therapy and discontinuation. The patient's role in medication administration is significantly crucial when adherence to treatment regimens depends on proper self-management.
1: That's really very interesting. A lot to manage there. And now in the post-COVID era, I think that would probably even increase the amount of stuff you have to manage. Tell me how you you do that.
2: That's correct. So um, during COVID, most of our patients, of course, you know, um, scared to fly back to Houston. So um, uh, most of our patients are coming all over United States and some are outside United States. So uh, nurses really have like a a very um, big role in education, mostly managing, you know, like I said, oral adherence and managing adverse events. We, uh, some of our patients, they do the, they're scared to fly. We ask them to do local labs, you know, and then they have to send it to us to check to make sure that it's within normal limits and they can proceed to the next cycle.
1: Do you find that the lines of communication can get a little bit uh, difficult to manage or, or do you have a way to kind of streamline that process?
2: In the beginning, it was, you know, very hard not um, like I said, most of our patients are elderly, so they're not used to a lot of remote and calling. So, but now um, they're very techy. They're very, they're very advanced now, and they can even text us back if we, you know, uh, if we, if they need us. So,
1: oh, that's terrific. That's great. It looks like we have Dr. Vashampayan on the line. And, uh...
0: great, hi, Dr. Vashampayan. Hope you're doing hi. well. I would like to introduce yourself and uh, tell us about what you do in your role.
3: Hi, my name is Ulka Vaishampayan. I'm a medical oncologist at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. My focus uh, of both clinical practice and uh, expertise is in clinical trials with n- development of novel agents. And uh, my focus of clinical practice is within genitourinary tumors. So because of that, I have a whole slew of rare diseases that I deal with all the time. Uh, you know, the main ones within kidney cancer, um, being within kidney cancer, the non-clear cell histologies are considered rare, and then there is uh, penile cancer as well as testicular cancer, which is not all that common, but uh, is definitely a very important problem that needs to be addressed.
0: So what are some of the, um, I guess, some of the biggest challenges that you see when you're treating these diseases since they're so rare, and then also what's uh, some of, you know, the exciting research that you've seen lately in them?
3: So most of the time, our biggest Uh, sort of priority is to practice evidence-based medicine. Unfortunately, in rare diseases, there are not those large trials that will guide us and give us, you know, adequate information to make those treatment decisions. So that, I think, is the biggest challenge in these rare diseases Obviously, if uh, we can find a very crucial genetic abnormality that, uh, or a mutation that will give us an inkling as to treatment, you know, for example, the TSC1 mutation uh, predicts for a huge sensitivity to mTOR inhibitors in some of the chromophobe and non-clear cell histologies within kidney cancer. So you know, we're making inroads into identifying some of the unique features of each of these tumors that are allowing us to personalize the therapy. But clearly a number of these patients have no exact targets identified. So we are treating them with uh, from studies and extrapolating from uh, patients with clear cell kidney cancer, which is the more common variety frequently. The other challenge, of course, is in terms of prediction of prognosis and uh, discussion with patients about what to, you know, what kind of treatments to pursue and what to expect from their disease.
1: How do you go about um, talking to a patient who has a, uh, a rare form of kidney cancer, say medullary kidney cancer and, um, you know, what to tell them about prognosis. You mentioned that it's difficult to kind of point to any specific phase three trial or really any retrospective data. Um, And so that's always a, a difficult position to be put in.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think you bring up one of the most challenging histologies in rare diseases which is medullary carcinoma. It is associated with sickle cell disease. It usually, trait actually, it usually affects the very young patient's population. Uh, So because of that, and, you know, disproportionately affects African-Americans because of the sickle cell uh, trait is more common in those uh, patients. The this is a very aggressive disease that very rapidly spreads and metastasizes. So, we frequently have to have the discussion that this is an incurable, you know, terminal malignancy, and we are still trying to feel our way as to which treatments really work. So, we do upfront chemotherapy, which can give us responses for some time. But for the most part, you know, almost everyone relapses or progresses, uh, even though they have an initial response. If you can do surgical removal, you know, the disease is rarely confined to the kidney. Most of the time we find it when it's metastatic. But uh, if it is truly confined to the kidney, then surgical management is key for these patients. And I think overall, it's a tough discussion because there isn't enough focus. You know, now there are some studies that are looking at specific targets in this disease and trying to develop targeted therapies. But there is, we have a long way to go in this cancer.
1: Do we know what why there's this relationship with sickle cell trait or is that sort of unknown?
3: Uh, you know, I don't know that we know the exact pathophysiology, but it does appear to be that sickle cell trait is frequently associated with a lot of collecting uh, uh, system of the kidney as abnormalities. So, you know, whether that chronic irritation has anything to do with it is probably, you know, a simplistic view. <laughs> to say that that causes the malignancy, or at least triggers something.
1: Yeah, I, I was on the inpatient service a while ago, and yeah. the with this, and it was just shocking because I'd seen her a couple of months prior, yeah, and then she came back on service, and the deterioration was just so rapid, and and um, yeah. and she ended up having a a massive PE and dying on sir. So it was just. Wow. horrible, just terrible.
3: Yeah, no, it definitely stays with you. And we yeah. just need to turn that emotion around and really focus on research in this disease because I think it is attainable. It's just, you know, these rare diseases, it, there aren't enough patients. So it's hard to get the focus on nice. them to do specific research.
1: Thank you, Olga. That was terrific. Yeah. And thank you, Maria. Um, you know, I think this is really, uh, you know, important to shed light on these rare diseases and and know that there's, you know, there's research where we're trying to, you know, uh, move the needle. And um, instead of just sort of treating as if this were some more common disease, but that is sort of, you know, what we do in a lot of these diseases, but um, trying to find the, you know, the needle in the haystack is really the the key, yes. yeah, I think uh, you know we have made inroads in a lot of these diseases.
3: Yeah.
0: Yes. <clears throat> well, thank you all so much for sharing. All of us, it was you know great to hear about all the all the new research and what to look forward to in the future.
3: I will just make a pitch that you know clinical trials are the way we make advances. So definitely encouraging your patients to consider those as the most cutting edge treatment, especially for rare diseases is is very important.
1: I 100% agree. Couldn't agree more. Yep, absolutely.
0: Same here. Thank you. Absolutely, well, thank you all again and thanks to everybody for watching today.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com.